Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And by the way, just to clear up uh, any confusion, this is not the 8 o'clock service. This is the 9.30 service. And welcome to uh, Eastern Daylight Savings Time. You know, I honestly don't know how many Bibles uh, I actually own, but if I had to guess, I would probably put it somewhere in the dozens when I think about all the different uh, versions and, and translations along with multiple copies at home and, and here at the church. And uh, even though I do most of this online uh, now, back in the day, I would often uh, open up a number of them, not only to compare the various translations of a piece of scripture, but also uh, to compare the titles that have been given to various passages of scripture by the editors of that particular version. And so, for example, in Luke chapter 15, uh, you find what most Bibles uh, label the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, which is what we call it, of course, uh, because it's true. Although some Bibles actually entitle that same story, not the parable of the prodigal son, but the parable of the loving father, uh, which when you think about it, at least in my opinion, is actually more true as you consider what that passage is really all about. And so it's stuff like that that gets me thinking and then gets me preaching. Uh, well, today's passage in Matthew chapter 8 uh, is often referred to in many versions of the Bible as the healing of the centurion's uh, servant, which is also true. And yet, in my opinion at least, uh, a little more descriptive, a little more uh, accurate is the title that I found in what I consider to be my work Bible, and that is not the healing of the centurion's servant, but rather the faith of the centurion. Because uh, as important as the healing of the servant is, and it obviously is, it's actually a secondary story to the primary story, which is this remarkable faith, this absolute certainty of this Roman soldier in the transforming and healing power of Jesus. And that's what I really want to get to uh, today as we find our stories and God's story intersecting once again in uh, the second of our journeys into the wilderness for this season of Lent. Uh, but first, I, I do actually want to say some things about uh, healing in general and the healing ministry of Jesus uh, specifically because uh, many people do consider this story the healing of the centurion's uh, servant and because uh, we sometimes do find ourselves asking questions about healing and, and when it happens and, and when it doesn't happen. And the first thing that comes to my mind is that when it comes uh, to the healings of Jesus, they're obviously uh, very important, very powerful. They are miraculous. And yet I think it's important to point out that they were never done for their own sake, but rather as a demonstration of something even greater. And that something was the lordship of Jesus, the messiahship of Jesus, who wasn't just uh, this miracle worker or faith healer, but who came to save us from something far more important than illness, far more important than injury, as big as those things definitely do feel to me whenever they happen to me or somebody I love. But in fact, the healings of Jesus point 
primarily to his lordship. So they do happen throughout the gospels and yet we also know that Jesus didn't just wave his hand over all of Galilee and, and heal everybody of every illness or every injury. And so the healings of Jesus are wonderful, they're powerful, they're miraculous, but they are primarily there to point to his lordship, to something greater and better even than bodily, physical healing. Which brings me to my second thought, which is to say that uh, while the healings of Jesus are uh, wonderful, they were in every single case temporary. Which is to say that the centurion in Matthew chapter 8 still ended up dying of something at some point in his future. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to talk about uh, the death of Jesus' friend Lazarus as we uh, journey into the wilderness of grief. And I will say again what I've said before, that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead for heaven's sake. And yet Lazarus still died. At some point in the future of something, there was another funeral after all. And in just that way, you know, someday you and I are going to die at some point in the future, even though we may have also experienced the healing of Jesus in our lives through things like surgery or medicine or therapy or, or some form of care. So that the healings of Jesus, as wonderful as they are, are temporary. And for all of us, it's only really a matter of time. And so, you know, I've conducted the funerals of a lot of people who lived, you know, longer than they were supposed to live because they experienced the healing of Jesus at some point in their past through one of those things that I mentioned to you. As to the question of uh, why some people live longer than others, why uh, healing has a longer expiration date for some than it does for others, the answer to that question is, I don't know. Uh, in spite of explanations that come to us from things like genetics and DNA and lifestyle and other things, frankly, there are some things that will remain a mystery to me and to you as long as we live on this side of the river. But if there's one thing of which I can be certain is that ultimate healing is absolutely in my future. Ultimate healing, that time when I will be completely whole, completely restored, better than ever, forever and ever, that kind of healing will come, not just in this life, but in the life of the world to come. Why? Because Jesus is Lord, which is really the basis for a book for terminally ill, faithful people, which is entitled, Either Way, I Win. So this is just a few thoughts about uh, healing generally and the healing ministry of Jesus specifically. Now let's get to this uh, centurion. This guy uh, was a uh, Roman military officer who had a hundred soldiers uh, under him, hence the name Centurion. Uh, he is stationed in the uh, village of Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, which also happened to be the home base uh, for the ministry of Jesus. He is, therefore, a man of authority. He has power. He has influence, and he probably also has 
uh, a little bit of affluence. He is a man of a certain degree of wealth. This man's also a Gentile, which is to say that he does not share the religion of Jesus or his followers or much of the nation, many of whom demonized Gentiles, looked down upon uh, Gentiles, not to mention that this particular Gentile was also a military officer, part of the occupying forces of their country. And so this was a guy they were really supposed to hate, except that they didn't hate him. And the reason that we know that is actually not from Matthew, but from St. Luke's version of the same story, where we learn that the elders of the synagogue in Capernaum had great respect for this Roman centurion, and that there was some sort of an, an unlikely relationship, an unlikely friendship that formed between them to the point at which this man actually contributes to the financing of the building of the synagogue in Capernaum, the ruins of which, foundation of which, you can see with your eyes to this very day. We also know that uh, this man has a big heart, as evidenced by his affection for this unknown servant of his, uh, who is desperately ill, whose clock is ticking, more than an extra hour on a Saturday night, by the way. And so he pleads to Jesus on behalf of this person who he obviously cares about, obviously love. And then finally we know that this man is a person who respects authority. He is a man of authority. He also respects power. He respects the authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the religion of Jesus. And he is absolutely certain of Jesus' ability to fix something that he knows he himself cannot fix in spite of his influence and in spite of his affluence. And the reason we know that is that when he pleads to Jesus on behalf of this servant who needs God's healing presence and Jesus tells him, I will go to your home, what does the centurion do? He stops him and he says, Lord, and notice, he doesn't call him master, he doesn't call him rabbi. He calls him Lord, Kyrie in Greek. Lord, he says, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Which on the face of it sounds like, you know, an, a remarkable uh, statement of personal humility, which I think is true. But what's even more true is his likely knowledge that under the rabbinic laws of religion, if Jesus walked into the home of a mere Gentile, he would have been considered religiously defiled, ritually unclean. And because this man respects the law, he respects authority, he respects Jesus, he stops Jesus from doing the very thing that he needs Jesus to do in his life and in the life of somebody that he loves and explains to Jesus that even in his own life, he understands that his power can be expressed without his physical presence. Just like, you know, when you ask somebody in your life who you absolutely trust to do something and they give you their word and you know they are going to do it. And with that comes this remarkable statement in the center of the whole story. When this Gentile Roman soldier, not of their religion, not of their nation, an unwelcome person 
in their midst looks at Jesus, his Lord, and says to him, you don't have to come to my house. Just say the word. Because if you give me your word, I will know that it will happen. You just say the word and my servant will be healed. You know what Matthew says about that? He says that the certainty of that man's faith resulted in the fact that Jesus was amazed. Now we talk about people being amazed by Jesus. There are only two places in the Gospels where Jesus is amazed. One of them is in Nazareth where he's amazed by their lack of faith. And then this time in Matthew 8 where Jesus is amazed at the absolute certainty of a Gentile Roman soldier in the midst of a very uncertain situation and circumstance in his life. And so then that leads to what I call this teachable moment when Jesus turns to his own followers and says to them, you know, don't be surprised if you find people who have come from the East and the West. In other words, Gentiles sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And with that, the passage ends uh, with Jesus affirming the centurion's faith and healing the centurion's servant. So that I guess either title actually works at the end of the day. So what's all that say to you as you find yourself in the wilderness of uncertainty, you know, about your own life, about your future, about the future of somebody that you love, the future of the world uh, that you live in? For me, it says for openers that my faith in Jesus is strengthened by my relationships with people in my world who are followers of Jesus because that's what happened with that Gentile Roman centurion who was a friend to the elders of the synagogue in Capernaum until he experienced the transforming power of Jesus for himself. Or as Martin Luther once said, hey, you want to know where God is? Just go to where God's people are. Not that complicated. It also tells me uh, that my life is secure, that my future is certain because Jesus is Lord of my life. And when you, like that guy, say Jesus is Lord by the grace of God and you mean it, then it does change everything. It changes the way you look at everything. In good times, in bad times, in joy, in grief, in war, in peace, in sickness, and in temporary health, or whatever uncertain moments and places you may find yourself in, in this journey through uh, the wilderness. It also tells me that when I do feel insecure and uncertain about my future, the future of somebody uh, that I love, that I have God's invitation to lean on his word, in which he tells me in no uncertain terms. You know, in this world, you've got trouble. In me, you have peace. And that someday, he healing or not, in the temporal world that you live in, you are still going to eventually die at some point in the future, but then you will be united with me in a resurrection like mine.
And then there's one other thing in the passage that I think is kind of easy to miss, actually, and it comes in verse 7, where Jesus tells this Gentile soldier, I will come to your house. Because Jesus is not deterred by a law that only creates separation and shame. He's willing to go to the Gentile's house. Because there's nowhere he's unwilling to go in order to welcome you into the circle of his kingdom, into the power of his grace and love. He's even willing to go all the way to a cross in order to ensure that your future with him is absolutely secure, absolutely certain that it will be better than ever forever and ever. Back in the late 1970s, about the time I graduated from high school, uh, there was a uh, award-winning movie. Actually, it was a TV miniseries. It was called Jesus of Nazareth. And it was uh, directed by the famous Italian uh, writer and director Franco, Franco Zeffirelli. And uh, it included an, an Italian-American actor by the name of Ernest Borgnine. Uh, who played a tough guy, you know, in various movies and uh, TV shows as well. And he played uh, the part, the role of the centurion in Matthew chapter 8. Ernest Borgdine died about 10 years ago, but not before he gave an interview uh, about his acting career, which included uh, his reminiscing about the time when they were filming Jesus of Nazareth back in the uh, probably mid-1970s. And he said that there was a day during the filming when he was there and he was, you know, in his costume in that soldier's uniform, he was carrying the helmet under his arm. And he said as the scene got underway, for some reason he was just caught up in the enormity of who Jesus Christ really is. He was caught up in the emotion of what, in his words, the good Lord has done for us. And so right there in the middle of the filming on the set, Ernest Borgnine gets choked up and he starts to cry. Pretty soon he said, you know, Anne Bancroft, who was playing the part of Mary Magdalene, wasn't even in that scene. She starts to cry. Cameraman starts to cry. Because somehow in the midst of that experience, they began to realize that God's story and our story still intersects in uncertain times to give us hope and faith and confidence that by God's grace in God's Lamb, you and I are still a part of the story of Jesus. Well, then uh, Ernie Bergnine uh, started to joke around that, you know, when they got themselves together, Franco Zeffirelli, the director, came up to him and said, uh, Ernesto, uh, can we do the scene again? And this time with less tears. Friends, uh, I want my faith to be amazing to Jesus. Not because I have dozens of Bibles, but because he is worthy of it. He is worthy of our trust and our confidence. He is worthy 
of our absolute certainty that God will see us through. Because Jesus Christ is the Lord, because his word is good, and it is for everybody, no matter who you are, where you're from, or what you do. And he will go anywhere, even to a cross, to make certain that you are part of his kingdom, at his table, in his family, within the circle of love. And for that, we give thanks. And of that, you can be absolutely certain, even when you're in the wilderness of uncertainty. As we do that today, and we say, thanks be to God, and amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I invite you to rise as we confess our faith together. <clears throat>